Welcome to the Radio Book Club, which is a collaboration between KGNU Community Radio and the Boulder Bookstore. We are here live at the bookstore. Delighted to be here in front of an audience once again and a very special guest who will be very well known to our listening audience. Joining us, Arson, my co-host, who have we got joining us for the Radio Book Club today? We're here with Ted Conover and his new book is Cheap Land, Colorado, Off-Gridders at America's Edge. Great to have you with us, Ted. Thank you. Thank you very much, Maeve. Well, at the start of the book, you write that back in 2016, the American firmament was shifting in ways that you needed to understand. And these empty, forgotten places seemed an important part of that. So how do you get from there to the San Luis Valley, which is really where you spent time immersed with these folks? Yeah, I guess... um I I live in a silo. I live in New York City where I'm a journalist and a professor. And that's that counts as a silo, I think, because the election of Donald Trump was very surprising to me. And uh, I'm not alone. Maybe there are other silos around. Maybe this is one. I don't know. Um, We're we're a bubble. We're a bubble. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, I was feeling the need to um, make a correction about the uh, inputs to my mind and my political knowledge. And I, uh, happened to visit South Park, uh, and went to a part I hadn't been to before South of Hartzell, which is a big, flat, empty piece of plains, which if you look on Google maps, you see this giant grid of, um, dirt roads superimposed on it. And, uh, and only a handful of people live there. But as I drove through, I wondered about them and why they would live there, because it's very lonely, it's windy, it's cold, and the people seem mostly to live in RVs or really sort of um, questionably sound structures, and uh, it just looked cold. And um, not long after that, I have a a sister who worked for the Gates Family Foundation in Denver at the time and visited Alamosa in the San Luis Valley where she saw people living off-grid in a similar fashion but much larger because the San Luis Valley is really big as you guys know and um, uh, it was similarly subdivided lots of it was in the 1970s into five-acre parcels that were sold um, uh, by newspaper ads and even on TV for $30 down, $30 a month. I'm told it was one of the only w- places you could buy land from that little down in the United States. And the lots were popular, but there were so many of them. Um, and it was hard to live on them. Um, anyway, I'm getting uh, ahead of myself. I thought it would be really interesting to learn more about people who lived out there. And from what I'd heard, they uh, voted for Trump, many of them. And I heard about a group in Alamosa called La Puente, which had an active outreach effort going to bring people out there sort of into their web of services so they wouldn't become homeless when it got cold. And one thing led to another, and I um, uh, asked if they could use another volunteer. They actually only had one employee doing this, and uh, they seemed to like that idea, and that was sort of the beginning of my education. Could you paint a picture of, of the San Luis Valley? Like, I think a lot of people, like you said to the audience, we, we kind of know it, but 
you know, maybe we go to Crestone or maybe we go to the sand dunes. Yeah. Maybe we drive down through it on our way to Santa Fe. But give us a feeling for what the true immensity of that valley is, because it's actually bigger than I realized. Yeah, it's, I guess, almost the size of New Jersey. That's a common comparison. It's really big, and it's it has a a really nice feeling of containment because it has the Sangre de Cristo range on the east side running north-south and then the San Juans are on the west side and the two of them enclose the valley and the very southern tip of the valley is about around Taos so it crosses the state line but most of it's in Colorado and it's um, it's one of the most beautiful parts of the state to me uh, it's it's got a very old um, population of people who sometimes refer to themselves as indigenous, and their sort of headquarters is the little town of San Luis, which is about half an hour from where I ended up focusing my um, time down there. And, uh, and the H Hispanic people down there, and, and that is the term they prefer is Hispanic, um, have a dialect of Spanish that is, you know, also spoken in some parts of New Mexico, but nowhere else. It's really uh, uh, a thing unto itself with lots of unique words, and um, and there's a very old culture there. Um, uh, San Luis is in Castilla County, which is one of the poorest counties in Colorado. They're generally thought to be five counties in the San Luis Valley. Um, the others, you know, you may have heard of Conejo, Salamosa, Rio Grande. Um, and then, yeah, there are, there's all these different parts. There's Crestone, which has a unique character, which I can, I can imagine some lines drawn between Crestone and Boulder, maybe. Monta Vista is probably the, the second biggest town. Alamosa is the biggest. You have to go over passes to get in and out of the valley from Colorado parts, whether it's La Vida Pass. Pancha Pass to the north takes you up to Salida and, um, and then over Wolf Creek Pass to Pagosa Springs. So um, anyway, it's gigantic and a neighbor of mine down there is a rancher named Harold Anderson who said, you know, a lot of prospectors came to the San Luis Valley but none ever got rich. And uh, that seems to have applied to people who came after the prospectors as well. Uh, you do not run into many wealthy people down there. Mm -hmm. Well, in fact, you run into a lot of people living mired in poverty. That's and correct. And in fact, La Puente, that organization you talked about, that's the, f the first homeless shelter for rural communities in the country, is that correct? It, it, or may, one be, of them? it may be the second uh, after one um, outside Brattleboro, Vermont. But we don't think about homelessness, I think, in the context exactly. of rural America. And yep. I think that also gets to the tension that you write about with the Hispanics, as, as um, you've just described there, who have generations of roots mm. in that area. Yeah. And then these new settlers who are coming in, these folks who are off the grid, but who want to be off the radar, yeah. usually off the radar of law enforcement as well, but they're coming, putting all their resources to buying this cheap land mm. and then essentially living in poverty. Mm. Talk a little bit about the folks who were moving there, the people who were attracted yeah. by the nature of the place and by the cheap land. So it's really interesting. People come for so many reasons uh, and it's hard to generalize about them, but you can in a few ways. 
I'd say most are white, but by no means all. There are so many different kinds of people. In fact, that's a title of one of my chapters. Um, there are uh, l lots of people with various disabilities who, um, who don't want to work anymore or can't work anymore. And some have income from SSI or some kind of um, uh, pension. There's military veterans. There's a lot of, of vets down there. And the volunteer I worked with, Matt Little, is also a vet. And he, he just says, he, he uses PTSD as an adjective. He's PTSD. Oh, they're PTSD, you can tell. And um, he's very uh, attuned to that. He's very attuned to not upsetting people. Um, he appreciates that, I'd say most, there's a strong libertarian streak. There's a desire to have little to do with government. And in many cases, little to do with other people. But not all. Uh, some people are very social. Even if they live miles apart, they use the one bar of cellular signal on their phone to send Facebook messages to each other. And um, in fact, I traded some with my neighbors down there today. I arrived with a thought that, it, you know, it's going to be, you know, a little bit redneck, uh, which is a, an unfortunate, unhelpful term in our political time. But it's an image that lingers in my mind, and it just doesn't even fit. Um, uh, I have a neighbor who likes to, when he has to rig some unlikely solution to an automotive problem, he says, that's, that's real hillbilly. And so there's a hillbilly thing. Um, there's a lot of people who've been in trouble with the law, a lot of outstanding warrants, the, the deputy sheriffs will tell you. There are more men than women, more people without kids than with kids, but there are kids. There are probably more straight people than otherwise, but there's everything. And you can, you know, the second person I met there uh, was a very friendly man, just a little younger than me, and uh, he came up to me and said, hi, my name's Paul, and yes, I'm gay. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so there's everything. And uh, that's not to say there's eternal tolerance. There are people who don't like other people, and there are people who uh, have addictions, and there are a lot of people who enjoy growing marijuana and often use it as barter. When one neighbor needs something from another, barter is often the way it gets done. But there's awful poverty. There are people who can't afford the gasoline to drive into town to pick up their medications, maybe insulin. Um, there are people who freeze to death every winter, lots of people. Uh, well, two of my neighbors have frozen in the last two years. Um, there, are, uh, there was a lot of denial around COVID until three people, I'd say within five miles of me, died in the last year. So it's a, it's a, it feels like you're in a, another world, but it also feels like you're in America right now. Yeah. You know, you've touched upon kind of one of the things that I found most surprising about the book. You know, having driven through there and, and seeing what the book was about, I thought there'd be a lot more about solitude. And it turns out to be a lot more about community. And, and the community is kind of intense because, like you said, people will have drug problems or people have extreme politics or, or people are violent. You have a whole chapter on the violence. 
And I guess did that surprise you how much you ended up interacting with other people when here you are in probably per cat per mile one of the least populated areas in the country? I, I guess it surprised me, but I'm so happy that it did because um, one of my great fears out there was being lonely. Um, and I'm sure lots of people are lonely out there. Um, but since it's kind of my job, first as a La Puente volunteer and then as a journalist, which people know I am, to talk to people, I have an excuse to show up and talk to people or just hang out. And, um, and once there was a very difficult barrier to entry because of my background, right? I'm not from there. I, I'll say I'm from Colorado and they go, where? And you say Denver and yeah, right. <laughs> um, no, and I have the stigma I carry of being a journalist and being uh, living in New York, which really it's that's the bias against that isn't just limited to the San Luis Valley. That's <laughs> that's a big scarlet letter, I know, but um, I bear it as well as I can. And um, but mostly I just hope that if I kept coming back and letting people know I was interested in their situation and wanted to know more. And at the time I began, I was working on this article for Harper's Magazine and um, and then it came out and then I could pass around Harper's Magazine to people I hadn't met. And um, so yeah, it was an incremental thing, but I did enjoy, I do enjoy not being by myself for more than a day, say, yeah. And I'm not, I think there are many people down there like that. But your last chapter, you actually deal with COVID. It brings us right up to 2020. And it's called Guns, Germs and Politics, which is, I think, a perfect description of America right mm. now. And you would think by the nature of the fact that people are so spread out, COVID mightn't have been as much an issue because it's not like in New York mm. where you live, people are on top of each other. Yeah. And yet it was. And, and you described, though, the the political intersection where people didn't believe what was going on. There were people who thought it was all a conspiracy and you were trying to have these conversations. I think at one point you were showing people documents on your phone. It was like, no, I mean, just describe some of those because I think having some of those conversations with people that you genuinely care about, you've got skin in the game. It's, yeah. it's a different stake than shouting at somebody on Facebook that you don't know or right. deciding to not speak to, you know, a second cousin because you disagree with them. And that's where a lot of people are right now. So describe what was going on then and, and how you breached the gap in some of those conversations. Yeah. So um, if you have a, an old fashioned TV antenna, you can pick up something like 15 broadcast channels down there without any subscription and and a lot of people watch Fox News for their news and many of those people don't did not believe COVID was real or that it was the emergency that experts claimed and I would come back from New York and people would ask me is it a hoax and I'd say no it's not a hoax my neighbor is a doctor and his hospital has um, refrigerated morgue units outside it because so many people are dying and my um, <clears throat> my other doctor, my personal doctor, is so stressed because she is seeing so many people die that she's thinking of quitting, and she later did actually. So I I tell stories like this, and it and people look at me like I must be lying, and I'd say no that 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 it's true, and 
then there, then you sometimes find people in a state of uncertainty. So I have a neighbor who gave a, a potluck a barbecue for Memorial Day, and he laid out um, masking tape on his deck behind his trailer for six feet, uh, social distancing lines. And um, he wore a mask. And I wore a mask, but we were the only ones to wear a mask. And nobody paid attention to the masking tape. And he's a hard person to pin down politically. He voted for Obama, and, and then he voted for Trump. You know, talking politics in that world is a, it's a, it's sort of nerve-wracking because you, um, you want to listen, you want to try to understand where people are coming from, but then you hear something uh, wrong or even offensive, and sometimes you have to say something. And uh, that gets to be really difficult. Um, and one of the hardest things for me about researching this project was not speaking my mind when I wanted to, because uh, I did not want to be the token liberal who you could always count on to argue with your point of view. But I did feel it was my duty when my neighbor said, yeah, I heard 30 people died in the valley so far this month, but that can't be true. I bet it was one or two. And I said, well, no, I just got an email today from the county health department. Would you, would you believe them? And he said, well, maybe. And I said, let me show it to you. And I handed him my phone and he goes, oh, okay, maybe it was higher. So, you know, maybe I moved the needle a little bit, but... I don't think much. I kind of think what I did was show you can have a conversation and not sell yourself out. You can say, say, well, maybe Joe Biden's son did something wrong, but I think Obama was a great man, right? You might give and you might go, <laughs> you might give a little and take a little, or. I know Hillary was no friend of people like you. I think that's true, actually. I think she did, does not like people like them very much, but um, I said she has a lot to recommend her. And uh, that's like, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it was always, um, in fact, often that would be my least favorite thing to discuss mm -hmm. is um, is politics, but it's, it, it's, it's so important. And um, I was asked, you know, would you vote for Trump? And I said, I would never vote for Trump. Why, why never? Because he doesn't think journalists um, are telling the truth. And I, and I work really hard to tell the truth. And they go, oh, okay. Okay. So there's all these individual exceptions. And it comes to even like, um, you know, the payments during COVID. Um, stimulus payments, right. So there are lots of people who feel the government should not be giving out that money, but if it arrives in the mailbox, they're going to spend it. And um, because they're not stupid, they would say. And so, yeah, you see people who are against welfare on welfare. And you go, well, there's a little contradiction there. And they go, hey, I'd be stupid not to take it. Mm -hmm. I say, okay, okay. And you qualify. So you should probably take it. Mm -hmm. But the Democrats encourage people to take welfare. And I'm like, well, 
do they? <laughs> it, it seemed in a you know in a larger way, not maybe party politics, but there were some aspects where it seemed you certainly sympathized with them, which is you know this code enforcement, this I, the idea that they want to live away from government intrusion, and it yeah. seemed like my reading of the book that you you found that reasonable. Well, so I think the county has every right to enforce its zoning code. And I think having a zoning code can keep people from fouling the groundwater and um, all kinds of bad stuff. So I believe in zoning codes. But uh, Costilla County has one, but for years they didn't enforce it. And then all of a sudden they were zero tolerance. Like if you did not have a septic system, you had 10 days to correct that. Seriously, or or mounting fines on a daily basis, and that's, and they moved out scores of people who'd lived there for a long time, and these are people who could not afford a lawyer, could not afford anything, and if they were going to save up for a septic system, it's going to take them months, and I think, y you know, they're just, it, they just did it the wrong way, and there's now a gentler code enforcement that starts with counseling and there's sort of a long timetable before penalties seem levied. But even so, there are people who resist having to pay permit fees to put in a driveway or permit fees to get an address. There's a lot of resistance to that. I don't, I'm not sympathetic. I think if the county is going to grade these roads, if they're going to send a deputy out, if they're going to have uh, school buses come out here for kids who need them, then something has to pay for that and so yeah so maybe sympathetic with the wrong word maybe you understood though in some ways where they came from or you you seem to because you you were kind of really embedded at the beginning with this family yeah like the grubers right. right you you spent i don't know how many months there but they had several kids and yes you, you really lived with that family you were on their property but you spent a lot of time with them as well yeah so that's a sort of core value of mine as a researcher is i want to get to know you better than we could from a conversation this evening. I'd want to work up there, <laughs> up in the headquarters. I'd want to see how you do it. And um, I'd want to come back day after day after day. We got some receiving you can do tomorrow morning. <laughs> I'll see you here at nine. <laughs> no, but the Grubers, um, the Grubers had been to La Puente. They had, uh, the dad had colon cancer and, uh, had just gotten out of the hospital when I met them. Uh, they had just had their youngest daughter, who their fifth and uh, their fifth daughter had been born about three weeks before I got there. And uh, La Puente said, "Would you like to have a tenant who would pay you rent to leave his camper trailer on your property?" And they said, "Yeah, send him down to meet us." And um, I like them. They they seem like good people. Um, they seemed. Uh, to think I was an interesting weirdo who uh, would come out there and want to hang out. And um, so they became sort of, yeah, my main, my main base for the first two years. And then about halfway through, uh, I bought my own land. You've described, you know, what the, there are some general, generalities about people who tend to move there, but so much individual individuality as well. But overall, I mean, we're sitting here in the Boulder bookstore in Boulder where the property prices couldn't be more yeah. different than cheap land Colorado, where I think it's like five acre plot for $5,000. I don't know if it's the same. You can even get it cheaper than that. Yeah. So it's like 
another world away, albeit it's in the same state. And I know many people would probably just have their own assumptions about even hearing you talk about what people are like. So what do people get wrong about that part of America, about rural America? Because since 2016 and the election of Trump, people have been trying to desperately analyse how how can we have such different yeah. things in our country here? What what are we not understanding? What 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 are we missing? I think one stereotype is that there's a monoculture of dull, white, poorly educated, discouraged people that fills in all the space between cities in, in the U.S. And um, there's a, you know, in my experience, there's a hint of truth to that, but it's so much more diverse and interesting than that. And what I kept running into was people who had... They just could not, could no longer find a way to live a more uh, typical life. Um, they had had disappointments. They were fired. They got injured. They couldn't afford life. Uh, you know, after my Harper's article came out, a guy who lives a mile from me said, he said, uh, I read your article and there's a problem with it. And I said, okay. And he said, you didn't put people like me in there. And I said, okay can I interview you? And he said, yeah. And he was a, uh, a tech worker in Aurora, owned his own house, had a mortgage. This is back in the MCI days. He was union. He made, I think around $70,000 a year until he was laid off. Couldn't get another job. Couldn't, um, couldn't afford his mortgage. He's on the verge of getting evicted. His son who'd been in the air force overdosed and died. And then his wife who had had um, uh, you know, issues with emotional stability killed herself. And he just gave up. And he moved, he lives in a trailer about the size of the first five rows on one side. He has four dogs. There's barely room for two people inside because he has furniture and food stored up. And it's totally gentle kind man was in the Navy. His mom is Japanese. His dad was white. Um, uh, he's been trying to build a house next to this little trailer for about three years. Somehow he just can't seem to finish it. And uh, he's one of my favorite neighbors. I, uh, I tried to get him a Home Depot grant for veterans through La Puente. And, and, uh, he didn't get it. I felt so bad because I had raised his hope that maybe he could. And anyway, there's there's just there's people you don't like, but there's a lot of people you do like and who you think, wow, a lot of bad stuff happened to you. And um, I don't really think in most cases it was their fault, right? Like lots of bad stuff can happen. And, and among people who are disappointed and and discouraged, I think, you know, sometimes some very strong political views can take root, and I think that's, that's happened. 
Well, we're going to say goodbye to our radio audience, but we're going to have more conversation here to be on the podcast. So I encourage people to subscribe to that for the after hours version. But in the meantime, Ted, thank you so much. It's been wonderful. to. I feel we're just getting started. Yeah, well, we are. There's going to be, like I said, switch over to podcast and we'll have more conversation with Ted Conover. But what we always do at the end of the radio show, Arson, is invite people to read along with us for the next book. So for the month of December, who are we reading? Reading Erica Wirth, and her book is White Horse. It's a Native American horror novel set in Colorado. I feel we've done Stephen Graham Jones a few times, who also writes Native American horror in Colorado. So we're we're going to be the experts in this this niche. But I'm very excited to read Erica's book. Um, I think we're going to get a real different look at Denver than many other books give us. So it's going to be exciting. Well, do tune into that. It's going to be on KGNU on the fourth Thursday in December. And uh, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. A lot more content there because we're going to have more conversation with Ted Conover. But in the meantime, thank you so much for tuning in to the Radio Book Club, a collaboration between KGNU and the Boulder Bookstore.